Welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome. Welcome to ED ECMO. This is ED ECMO. Hello, ED ECMO. This is Zach Shiner, and it is November 2020. And uh, this month, this month is the single greatest month in all of eCPR. And, and honestly, it might be the greatest month in all of resuscitation. Um, what happened this month as far as publications is, is out of this world. And it's largely a result of what's happening in Minneapolis and largely the result of one man, Dimitri Yiannopoulos, who we have on the phone right now. Dimitri, thank you for joining us today. Zach, thanks for, for um, the invitation. It's a pleasure being here with you, my friend. It's been really a long five years for this month of, uh, of uh, happiness. Uh. So Dimitri and his team published the first randomized control trial ever in eCPR. And um, this paper just came out in The Lancet. There's another paper that they co-published, which we're going to talk about today as well, uh, which is equally fascinating and, uh, and speaks to so much of what we're all trying to do in the eCPR community. Uh, I will just start off with the first paper, and that is, Dimitri, it was a, it's in The Lancet. It was a randomized control trial where you took 30 patients. They got the usual pre-hospital protocol that you've had in place for so many years where three shocks, rapid transport to the ER, and then in the ER, they were randomized to either going to the ER and getting an hour of chest compressions, usual ACLS therapy, or going up to your your throne room in the cardiac cath lab and getting ECMO placed. Is that correct? Yes, with the exception of the throne room. But uh, yes, everything else was correct. Um, so this is basically um, the, the first trial that uh, tried to assess the independently, like objectively, the role of uh, what does ECMO do in the grand scheme of things of patients that uh, have refractory cardiac arrest. Randomized patients um, that arrive to the hospital with ongoing CPR, to either go further with ACLS, uh, which is the standard you know, practice in the United States and the rest of the world, or going directly to the cath lab, we have to be placed on ECMO to facilitate resuscitation and then allow us to look for the causes of the arrest, whatever that might be, if identified. Many cases, uh, you know, the, the main reason for that is we're trying to look for coronary artery disease or pulmonary embolism things that we can fix in order to reverse the cause, that it's not doable with the standard ACLS process. And, and so uh, with these two cohorts, with these two groups, uh, what, what happened? What were the results? So uh, just uh, to get an understanding of this a little bit, so step back, you know, we have been doing this for five years and we have uh, tried to be consistent with our inclusion criteria in our um, therapies so these are people, just to put things in perspective, that they have failed at least three shocks in the field. So if you failed two and you got shock on the third one, you are not in the study. If you got uh, multiple shocks uh, and you failed, but eventually you got ROSC upon arrival, you were in the study. So you had to have at least three failed shocks. So um, you could have pulses, so it was intention to treat. Um, population, but uh, we didn't have anybody that met the criteria. So all of our patients arrived with ongoing CPR in the hospital. In the age 18 to 75, they had to be on a Lucas because um, you know transporting patients with manual CPR is unsafe for medics 
we don't want to do that. And this has been going on in Minneapolis for about six, seven years, so nothing new. And then they had to have at least a, a reasonable time of transport, so half an hour from the time they made a decision to uh, transport to arrive in the hospital. So we don't want people that have worked for an hour in the field and then took another hour to come to us. So those are the major criteria, so you understand the population. The trial was basically designed in a way that um, we were hoping to find a 37% survival rate in the ECMO group and 12% survival rate in the control group uh, based on publications from the past. Similar cohorts have been published in the United States, Canada, uh, Japan, and Korea. And so uh, we were planning to do 77 patients, 52 patients in the ECMO group and 25 patients into the ECMO group, it was an adaptive trial design, meaning that every 30 patients, we will readjust the weight of the randomization to the most favorable group. Um, that was part of the plan of the trial. After the first 30 patients were randomized, um, we had to do the first analysis based on the protocol. And um, what we found out that we had six survivors out of the 14, and one of the 15 patients uh, that was randomized in the ECMO group um, removed himself from the trial three days later, so we cannot report on his outcomes. So four out of the 16, uh, six out of the 14 patients survived the hospital discharge at that point, and then one out of 15 survived on the ECMO group, or the, sorry, in the standard ACLS group. That um, primary endpoint of the trial was hospital discharge, and that already crossed the early stopping criteria that was pre-specified by the trial design. So it was not an independent uh, look, it was a pre-specified um, criteria that was uh, crossed, and that was uh, in adaptive trial designs, uh, we look at posterior probabilities. A posterior probability for some I mean, this is not a very common, you know, study design. Most people are familiar with the p-value. But a posterior probability is basically the probability of what you're looking at to be true. Um, in the posterior probability, the probability of our distribution of events, so 43% in the ECMO group versus 6.7% in the standard ACLS group, was mathematically thought to be 98.61% True. And at that point, the DSMB had the obligation to review the data, consider safety for proceeding, and um, the ethical was that still equipoise to continue randomizing patients. So the DSMB committee, by looking at that and putting also the things in the perspective from our prior published cohorts, as well as the national cohorts of the standard ACLS group, decided that it was unethical to continue randomized patients in the standard ACLS group and unanimously recommended to the National Institute of Health to stop the trial for efficacy and basically uh, lack of equipoise anymore. And at that point, NIH uh, statisticians and leadership reviewed the data and um, they basically uh, closed the study and said you cannot randomize anymore. Okay, so you had 30 patients. 15 in each arm. Of the ACLS patients, the patients got traditional therapy. One person survived, and then they died later on uh, within 180 days or something like that. So, um, so honestly, no long-term survivors in the ACLS arm. In the ECMO arm, 
six patients of 14 survived. And then I just, I mean, this, you just can't make this stuff up. So let, let me just make sure I understand this. A guy has cardiac arrest, has whatever many, you know, 15 minutes of downtime, gets put on ECMO, wakes up, and then excludes himself from the trial. I cannot comment on that. <laughs> okay. All right. I knew you couldn't, but, it, but let's just say um, six of 14 patients and then another patient who is a potential survivor um, who opted out of the study. This is an amazing, I mean, we already knew this was going to be take place with uh, what kind of data that you have showed us from before, but you now showed it with a clear, randomized, well done adaptive trial that ECMO is not just a little bit better, but tremendously better. Would you agree with that statement? So, yes. Yeah, so this is uh, the tricky part about this thing is that the magnitude of the effect was, um, was profound. I think this, um, you were correct. There was not a single patient that survived neurologically in any, you know, point of view normally in the, co- in the standard group. The one patient that survived in the ACLS group was devastating neurologically and died subsequently within um, two months. And the in- intriguing point was that um, the f- 40, 45% of the people that survived with the ECMO, early ECMO facilitation, at six months, they were completely normal, what we consider CPC-1. Um, and uh, that, to me, is a very, very important point. We have now shown that in an organized system, and it has to be underscored significantly um, and heavily, if you have a process where you identify people early, you have an experienced team, and you take care of these people in an organized fashion, seriously, without actually, you know, um, random people take care of these patients, then you can actually survive people on average with an hour of CPR, which is incredible by itself. And we also know that at that time, period of time of CPR, there is not a single place in the world that can with ACLS survive anyone. You always have somebody who survives, right? This random case where two hours of CPR and survive. But when you look at the data, the data do not lie. Pretty much survival is 0% after 40 minutes of CPR. You have one in a thousand, somebody surviving, and everybody says, well, you see, it's possible. But uh, um, I think that magnitude of effect, it's very similar to defibrillation kind of trials, right? It's, um, it's profound. Profound. So you, you mentioned something and you said this was very important and I completely agree. And I think it's a, a take home for everyone that's listening is that in your paper, a large percentage of the patients upon discharge had CPT, CPC scores that were not one, but they all went to one at the six month mark. And so when we look at these survival to discharge or CPT scores on discharge, that doesn't necessarily reflect um, the magnitude of the benefit of eCPR. So this is a very important point that uh, we struggled with, and we didn't want to touch upon that during the paper publication, but something that we as a community have to face from now on. The MRS score and the CPC scores are not cardiac arrest scores. They are scores for stroke patients. And as such, any kind of uh, mobility um, handicap that is present at discharge is heavily weighted towards uh, a bad neurological outcome. But that's not the case for these patients. These patients 
cannot walk by them. So if you cannot walk by yourself, you get an MRS of three, which is at the level of acceptable rates. But these people cannot, if you are in the ICU for two weeks and also for a month with ECMO paralysis in, you know, ventilators and drugs and, you know, any organ failure, um, and you believe that you can walk leaving the hospital at 20 days, then you have never done critical care or understand how the body works. So what we need to really find out is a better way to describe the, the function of these people because neurological devastation or injury does not really correlate with the MRS score in these patients because these people neurologically improve to the point that they're completely with it, um, but the major um, disadvantage they had during the scoring uh, process was the ability to walk independently or without a cane. And those things are thought to be related to the stroke uh, in the stroke scale, so they give you an artificially higher uh, score. But all of those were basically like somebody who get a, gets a bypass surgery in a unit for a week that requires two, three months of rehab in order to be able to walk and do the daily activities by themselves. If we, run, if we score those patients, they still have a bad neurological function, dysfunction pretty much. So I think that um, the amazing finding to us, we, we knew that because we've been doing this for a while, but is that over the period of three, six months where we see these patients in clinic, these people are normal patients. They come back and you cannot even many times recognize who they are because they oh. change them. It's such a good point for all of us to remember and, and speaks so highly to the ICU care and how you own the patients and how you um, just take in all these other ECMO patients from all over Minnesota, which we'll get into in a second. But before we get there, I want to kind of dig down into the, a little couple details. So you use primarily VFVT patients, and in this study, you, that was part of the inclusion criteria. Tell me, y- you a believer in ECMO, is, is that the right criteria? Yeah, I know a lot of people debate about PEA and VF. Uh, you know, I, I kind of feel that the reality is that um, when you start a program, you really need to have a population that is viable in order to get the experience of how you manage it. I think we talked about it in the past. Um, PEA, out of the cost of PEA, is a very uh, grim uh, disease process. So if you start a program and you start doing PEA as they did a lot in Paris and they don't care about the rhythm, where you end up concluding what I have concluded from the day one is that you destroy your system effectively because you overwhelm your system. There are many more patients with baseline worse outcomes. And as such, it leads to uh, a very negative feeling for the healthcare providers. So have a young patient who are SMAD and have PE, for example, we do a lot of those PEA arrests, right, or pseudo-PEAs. But we have not tried to do systematically out of the host of cardiac arrest PEA because it would be overwhelming. There's nowhere to put these people. So the sheer number of these cases, in addition to the worst, to the bad outcomes they have, to me, at least in the United States, and the way we work with limited beds, as you know now, it's, it's a no-no because you will basically devastate your system and you, they will shut you down. So that is the reason we start with VF. Not because I don't believe that you can save or help people with PEA, but the work that needs to be done for PEA is probably equivalent to the VF. It takes years to figure out who and how and when. And we don't know that information yet. Excellent. And then into that when 
criteria. You've used three shocks. And I looked, you know, your previous paper, you had, what was it, 100% survival in your less than 30 minutes of chest compression uh, cohort. Do you think we should be going earlier? Do you think that three shocks is the right time? When is the right time? So we have now, since the trial is over, we have changed that because we potentially can talk about it as well. But, you know, with this community effort where we have mobile teams responding to the peripheral hospitals, our goal is to get to them as early as possible. The time is the most important factor. And if you think about it from a strategic point of, of delivery of healthcare, it really doesn't make any difference when uh, you mobilize. You can mobilize in all areas. It's a matter of resources. So what decided to do, we get called as soon as the first shock has failed, they call us. We are on standby and we're ready to go. If they get pulses, the next shock, they call us back and say, okay, we're done. But most of the times what we do, we go to the rendezvous hospital and we are there before the patient arrives. If they need us, we are available. If we're not, if they don't, if they don't need us, we just wait for 20 minutes, make sure they don't rearrest, and then when we leave, when we stabilize. So effectively, this is how I feel that you're correct. You're touching upon the most important aspect of this, which is time. And if we can get to this patient between 30 minutes and 40 minutes and put them on ECMO, survival for VF is going to be in the 70, 80% for all VFers. And this is something that people fail to understand. I said that five years ago, I think VF survival rate is going to be equivalent to operated aortic aneurysm, right? So, um, and uh, probably the same as STEM is in the future in an organized system. The reason is it's a very good prognosis rhythm. When identified early and you have a team to get there within 30, 45 minutes, you're already getting to the refractory population and you give them a survival rate of almost 70%. The people that had ROSC in our system, because of the experience, they have almost 80% survival rate. So people that get ROSC within three, four shocks or five shocks, they survive 80%. You can bring the refractory people to 70%. You don't have to be a math genius to figure out where overall survival VF is. It's about 70, 75%. So I think that we, you and I, meaning not our kids, in our lifetime, we're going to see some systems where they try to optimize this in better ways than we can, um, that survival will be 70, 75% for VF populations. And that is, you know, it's not a dream. It's not a pipe dream. It's actually going to happen. I truly believe that. So that is uh, the time effect, the response of the team and the experience is what is going to make it work. And do you think, have you quantified or looked at at all? I didn't see this in any of the papers of the potential effects of transporting on decrease in chest compression quality in efficacy of the fourth shock, that sort of thing. So, you know, this is obviously correct. It's very difficult to address that. What we have done is we have uh, trained the medics a lot to basically do two things. One, continue ACLS en route. So not only they continue Lucas and ventilations, but they also shock regularly. So we try to make sure they don't forget the basics. We have done something different than most of the services. We have limited epi doses and we have uh, you know we try other things we come from far away that I'm not going to go into because it's you know at this point a little uh, premature to talk about those things but the reality is 
you have to focus on good ACLS and root because every patient that you can get getting pulses on the way to the hospital is a win. The earlier they can perfuse themselves, the better. And that brings us to the next point is that if you had a way, so the French is, uh, you know, the, the Parisian group has it uh, thought correct, correct uh, that uh, if you can get to them faster, uh, it's better. I just, what I disagree with this is the randomness of doing CPR on different places. So we are going to address that with the ECMO track. So our next trial is going to be a trial where one week we bring people to the hospital and one week we go with the ECMO track dispatched with the fire trucks or the first responders to the cardiac arrest of, a, of an area. And then the, the doctor on it will take charge of who randomized or do randomize because week by week we are hoping we can do. But you basically have a doctor takes over the resuscitation in, on the scene and decides transfer this patient, you know, 50 yards to the track to do the ECMO. Now that will limit the time a lot and will take, will solve one more problem, which is, you know, when you have three, 4,000 paramedics, you have to have training for everybody and you have to remind everybody the progress all the time because they, you know, they um, renew the fleet and also the personnel very frequently. Sometimes things fall through the cracks. So that takes away that component because the team that responds is the team that thinks about ECMO and resuscitation and will be there you know, within 10, 15 minutes from the call, maybe a little later because the track is a little slower than the, the, you know, the other machines, but they will be available to take the patient from their house or from, you know, the, the yard into the track and do ECMO. And that will eventually, once for all, you know, show what is the best way to deal with this. And that will open the door for all your emergency medical um so basically, it's the concept, bring the hospital to the patient, if you can, then the patient to the hospital when you have the capability. So just to clarify to the listeners, uh, Dimitri has built a semi-truck that has a cath lab in it that can do fluoro, and they are going to be driving it in similar fashion to the Parisians, only they're going to maybe even meet at a Walmart if you want to go, if you can find like some midway point or meet in front of their house and just put the patient directly into the cath lab in the truck, put them on ECMO there and potentially decrease the time. Amazing, <laughs> amazing uh, development. So that, that'll be another trial in the future. Cool. So let's let's look because now we're kind of moving into that second paper, which I, I almost missed. I almost didn't read that before today, but uh, it's amazing. I mean, that other paper spells out, I think, what a lot of us are asking. When, what I'm asking is, I'm Zach Schneider. I'm in San Diego. I'm an ER doc. Like, how do I take the, the genius of what you're doing in Minneapolis and apply it to me? And I think that second paper does describe a bit of that. Can you go into how that that process worked? Yeah, so this is uh, this is also our thought process. It's like, okay, if me and Jason Bartos are the only people who can be dedicated to this and do this, what's the point? We're going to very quickly, you know, have a backache and, you know, heart attack or be dead, and then uh, no one else can do this. What's the point of us, uh, you know, spilling our life to this task and no one else can do it? So we... 
we kind of went down the path of trying to figure out a way that this can be scalable and replicated and provide a blueprint for other communities. So the, the main premise of this came from my interaction of multiple EMS, multiple healthcare systems, and trying to figure out what could potentially work. So here is the main points of this. One is that cardiac arrest, although is a frequent event, is an infrequent event for individual doctors to take care of. So no matter how good you think you are in cardiac resuscitation, you've seen, you know, one, maybe two cardiac arrests every couple of months as in the doc, maybe more unless, you know, you're a receiving center. But then from those, how many of those are VF and how many people are these people? So what happens is, is in a city, like, for example, Minneapolis, we have about 2 million people. We have about 300 VFRS in the metropolitan area, right? And we have 11, 12 hospitals that they receive STEMI centers. That means, like, there are probably 20 cases a year for each one of those, and half of them are refractory, so about 10. And they have 10 cardiologists and, you know, 100 ED docs. So the reality is, that if you were dependent on each one of these hospitals to have the expertise and the knowledge to be competent physicians to deal with this most time-sensitive emergency, you're probably going to fail because neither the interest, nor the knowledge, nor the experience is there to, to manage this. So we said, okay, how about bring the healthcare systems together and create a small team of about, let's say, 10 doctors, that that's part of the job. And they are shared by their healthcare systems. And we created this company, which is a non-profit company. It's called Minnesota Mobile Station Consortium, or MMRC for short. And the idea is that this little company is co-owned by the healthcare systems. It um, takes emergency doctors, critical care doctors, and cardiologists that are interested in doing that part of the job. We train those people. Uh, for a while, probably more than a year or two, in order to create some levels of expertise that can become independent. And eventually, they leave me and Jason from that uh, job where they can do it independently and be part of the team as sole operators. And we take two flight medics, that they are nurses and um, medics, that uh, have a lot of experience in critical care, transport, and patients' care, and um, we have a three physician and assistance uh, team that dispatches at um, the community request. Now, what we have done in order to be not competitive, but complementary to healthcare systems is that the doctors stay at the healthcare systems and we basically rent their time. And when we go to the different health the hospitals to cannulate, we operate as being their employees. So we build for those hospitals and therefore nobody fights about whose patient is this and why is this. And, and we agreed that there are hospitals that don't want to be ECMO centers because neither the volume nor the expertise or the cost justifies that. So then we centralize the ECMO in one, in the future potentially two ECMO sites that are willing to be, those are the transplant centers and they have high volume of ECMO care. So there is, um, room into the operations to absorb these patients and build on there without devastating the system. So effectively, what we said is decentralized ECMO cannulation to facilitate a faster cannulation for patients and expand the reach of the program 
to more suburban and rural populations in the Minneapolis St. Paul and centralize the ECMO care so we have high levels of expertise and concentration of knowledge in order to optimize their outcomes. Share the costs and share the teams with the healthcare system so they, they do not antagonize each other for this rare patient, but very difficult to deal with. And, you know, uh, it helped. This was obviously, it still is an experimental kind of organization because it's funded by a grant by the Helmsley Foundation, which we're very grateful for. And what the goal for this is to build the infrastructure to become financially independent and build our services back to healthcare systems. And a lot of that cost is pass through costs. We build them for what we do, but then we pay them back for the physician's time. So it's not to make money, but it's basically to provide a service that comes at no cost or very little cost to healthcare systems to provide this life-saving enterprise and interventions to all the citizens of the large metropolitan area. Okay. So let me try and sum that up. And and what I read on the paper, I'll probably make some errors here, but you've expanded the area to several hospitals. You have nine or 10 cannulators. Is that what I read in there? And these are 10 cannulators. These are ER physicians. These are cardiologists. These are intensivists. Yes. Mm -hmm. And these physicians then respond to the ECMO call and they go to the hospital that is closest to where the patient is arresting of the participating hospitals. So it's a spoken hub model. The cannulation occurs there. And so therefore that hospital gets the DRGs of the initiation of ECMO. Is that correct? And then because there is a benefit to having Dimitri or Jason manage these patients in the ICU, we then transfer from that receiving hospital to University of Minnesota and potentially another site in the future. After they have done the angiogram at the site of the cannulation. So Initial cannulation, stabilization, station, and coronary angiography happens at the peripheral hospitals for the purposes of sharing the, the financial burden of, um, of this disease. And then, um, then uh, you transfer the patients to the ICU for a high level of care for an ECMO center. Excellent. And you talked about cost savings. The other thing that I saw in that paper, which is interesting, is that you have floral capabilities in all of these ERs. Is that correct? Well, we did. And that is where the grant helped a lot. And, you know, that's something that the systems have to come up with. It's not a significant, insignificant cost, but it's not a devastating cost. So we have some, the, what the MMRC does, what the company, the mobile ECMO company uh, does, is we bought floral tables that we leave an emergency department and the sole reason they're there is for us. And we also have ECMO machines that we are responsible for. So the ECMO machines, we provide to the EDs. So what happens is we have uh, 10 ECMO machines and we leave the three ECMO machines primed, ready to go in its emergency department. So once we get activated, the ED also gets activated from the same process through dispatch and they move and they change the state room to an ECMO initiation room. So they take out their bed, put our floral table in, put the floor outside and the ECMO machine there, and they bring the ECMO cart that has all the equipment. We don't rely on this because we bring our bags with a kind of pre-specified um, order of things that we can use. So like a, 
uh, a pit stop kind of uh, situation. We need to know where everything is every time. We bring that with us, but the ECMO machines are there. At the end, after the patient has been placed on ECMO, went to the cath lab and is ready to go, our um, medics or nurses, uh, part of the team, they go in the car, bring the other prime ECMO circuit, and they replace the one that was in the emergency department before. So when we leave, it's ready there for us to get another patient going. So we basically are responsible for um, the calculation of each site, management of this patient up to six hours. So we have credentials and privileges on all these sites. And then we are responsible for transferring the patient from the peripheral hospital to the ECMO center. And um, we're also responsible for managing all the equipment in, that has to be ready for us to do it. We cannot rely on non-ECMO sites to manage ECMO machines and equipment. So I, I, I want to not under or overstate this, but this is huge. The, the survival in that paper was similar to your other papers, right? 27 of 58 patients survived in this new model, which doesn't just include Jason Bardos. It doesn't just include Dimitri Sianopoulos. It's, it now has expanded, just like you were saying, like it's beyond these two guys that can do this better than everyone else to a much larger community. And you're getting the same survival, which to me is huge as far as leadership it's huge as far as organization it is crazy kudos for for your team and the ability to to expand it uh yes so this is um the the tricky part of all these things is the the volume and the experience and i i keep on saying this because i think this is the most important message what I'm afraid of is that people are going to say, okay, we have an ECMO machine here somewhere. Let's start an ECMO program. And then you have 10 hospitals trying to do competing with each other for two patients. And no one is going to see this kind of survival rates. People have tried that in the past and they failed. And they're always amazed when we, when we have this consistency. And what is the fundamental difference between our program, and the majority of the programs that have been built around the country is how few operators we had for a long time to create the experience. So I think for any city or any, you know, a million patient population, a million citizens population basis, uh, you probably need four or five cannulators to be doing that job. And the reason I'm saying this is everybody thinks they can do a cannulation, but when things don't work out easily, and you don't know how to deal with the immediate post-cannulation issues that arise, and you don't have a perfusionist or a critical care doctor has been doing that for many, many years and has an interest in this population, you will lose a lot of patients because of complications and inability to manage the patient immediately after. So I think it's important. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm not saying I have any objective evidence to suggest this. I'm just talking about how I view this. As any other high-stakes procedure, the people that initially taking charge of that need to gain a lot of experience to see what is important and what is not important. And um, they then can be the educators for other people to get that knowledge concentrated so they don't have to have so much exposure before they become competent. This is similar to what we did initially, like, you know, I started this over two years 
Then Jason came in, came in as a fellow, became faculty. And then now we are training these people. We are always at the bedside with them doing these cases until they become completely independent. And then they will take all our knowledge of the thousand cases we've done over the last five years and they will learn faster because we can tell them where to focus. We, we had to figure this out all by ourselves, effectively. And that is with their own way to do it in each community. Like if you, not you, but somebody else who has never done an echocannulation goes and starts a program and has to learn without somebody telling them what to look for, it will take 10 years to get the experience with the low volume they have that we have in a year. So it will be a disadvantage to the program to do so. And that is a very important point for all this. And my fear a little bit. So when I'm listening and I'm thinking about what next steps I could take in my city, and there's people all over the world that are in similar situations where they're kind of one of the persons in that city that, that are the movers and shakers. It sounds to me like where we should focus our efforts is in the collective, in the whole city Focus, see how many arrests you have in the whole city and see how you can gain the mass, most amount of experience in the least number of cannulators. Correct. Mm. And the best way to do this is try to find collaboration with different healthcare systems. So you pick a person from here, from there and there. So everybody feels they are part of it. But then you have enough people that they share a call and then they can get some experience. Otherwise, I'm sorry, but I don't think this is doable. There might be other models that I don't know about, but the way the healthcare is delivered in the United States, if that model is not followed, it's going to be very difficult to create the expertise in a center that will allow this to be replicated widely. Yeah. And and I think, maybe I'm speaking a little bit ahead of here, but I think this, this whole program can be a cost-neutral thing However, the initial phases, it sounds like it, it does take some upfront costs that, that are more than one hospital can really absorb. So Correct. maybe that is another take home is that you focus on those upfront costs, understanding that in the long run, this, you know, might repay itself. I think it does. And, uh, you know, we will try to show some financial um, data for this, the, that's why I think it's also important to, f- to focus on the efforts because you need to have a, a high enough rate of survival to justify in society why you're spending all this money. Now, if you say 10% of uh, you know, 90 ECMOs die and 10 survive, the cost is <laughs> it's explosive and that would not be sustainable. So you need to be close to 40 50%. And you can actually make it better by tightening your criteria. But then what happens is if you tighten your criteria a lot and a lot of people have made that mistake, then you have no patience to gain experience on. So we're kind of lucky that the initial criteria that we chose were broad enough that allows us to have enough patience with the collaboration of the emergency medical system directors, but also not tight enough, or sorry, broad enough that we devastate our system with all brain dead people or people that had other problems that cannot be fixed. So we were lacking this. I cannot, um, you know, lack is always uh, an important factor when you choose criteria because you don't know at the beginning, you just guess. And the thing I was also good was 
we were also lucky with this perfusion criteria that we chose uh, that uh, showed to be consistent and reliable in predicting people that they do very poorly. Now, you always, we always had this one patient that had 20 lactic acid, very young and nothing else and survived. But if you look at our data, people with a higher lactic acid going to 16, 17, they don't do well. And people with lower PO2s, they do very poorly. So when we use those two criteria consciously, I think we have done much good to our program um, by eliminating the extremes, not putting some people on ECMO, about 15 to 20% of them are not being placed on ECMO because of those poor perfusion criteria. And that also decreases the burden to the healthcare system. Okay, I'm going to, as we wrap up here, I'm going to go back to this, the paper. Um, we've got now a randomized controlled trial that showed quite substantial benefit for ECMO. And the future is going to be very difficult to prove clinical equipoise for any future randomized trial. It's also a small trial. How do we take this? What are the implications of this study? Do we end this and say, hey, in a well-functioning system, without a doubt, eCPR is better than traditional ACLS? Yes, the answer to this is yes. I will not participate in any other uh, trial. I do this very, very difficult for me to do this trial. Both me and Jason struggled with this because it was it was basically a parachute trial. We know that the people don't have pulses at 50, 60 minutes. No one really survived in our history. And so we could never prove with our randomized trial that we, the ECMO was not saving the people that would have been saved because they got pulses later. But we have proven that now. And then in, our, in Minneapolis and Paul, there's no way we can have equipoise to actually do a trial anymore. So where do we go from there? People ask me, can you do a phase three trial? Well, I think it's a little bit the concept. I'm against it. I actually advised against that to NIH when they asked me. I said the, the, the following. It's a little bit like transplantation. Now, we did a, nobody has ever done a transplantation trial. Like half of the people get transplant, half don't. Because when they need the transplant, you know their inevitable death is coming, right? Most of these people have like 80, 90% one-year survival and mortality rates before they get a transplant if they continue the path. So when you do transplants and you figure out they survive 90% in a year, then you know that it's done. So no one ever done a transplant. So I think the ECPR question has been answered. What has not been answered is how do we make this work for society? And that is not an issue of a scientific investigation anymore. It's a matter of organizational questions of how do we organize our system to provide this therapy in an efficient way to show this. Like a pragmatic trial is what? If you give ECMO to 100,000 physicians and tell them put a ECMO, oh, they're going to die. Then no one's going to survive. It's not a question if, you know, uh, if I were to do bypass surgery in a trial and never, I was not a surgeon, they will all die. Because bypass doesn't work. So now what we've shown is that in the proper hands, when people are trained and know what they're doing, ECMO really helps, significantly helps this population. The answer to now is to the rest of the, of the physicians and the systems to figure out ways that it will work in their own system. Training, education, and potentially uh, you can do trials before, after, 
with implementation and basically Q&A. I don't think you can rightfully justify randomize somebody that comes with 45 minutes of CPR and UED to do nothing anymore. Mm. That's my opinion. People will say no, but I will not going to participate in a, third, in a trial in Minnesota. And actually, it's very clear that when we talked about it, Minneapolis and Paul standard of care has changed. We cannot really randomize people getting nothing. Thanks to you. Yeah. Thanks to all of us. Thanks, all all of us. Yeah, and all of your EMS, I mean, and, and Jason and the whole crew. I mean, it's just it's a phenomenal team and the Helmsley Foundation. I mean, all of that contributes to it. I, I was actually thinking, Dimitri, when you wrote that that foreword for our upcoming also book. And uh, you went through all the cardiac bypass history and all those people. And I was thinking, man, in the future, when we look back and we, and, and I think we're going to be looking to you. I mean, that your name is going to be in there for like, hey, this was a change. And then I was thinking, you know, probably people at some point are going to say, well, duh. Like, of course, of course, ECMO is better. Like you, you thought that chest compressions and epinephrine was the way to go. Like, of course, that was the way to think. And that's how we kind of look back on some of these people who did heart lung bypass, transplants, these sort of things at the beginning. Like, it's hard to understand how much work and how many people pushed against this. Uh, I'm sure for you, I I can only imagine to get all this stuff off the ground uh, and to to make it to the point where now it's just a a no-brainer. It's an, it's a, of course you're going to put ECMO on a refractory cardiac arrest patient. So with that, Dimitri, thank you. We, we owe you so, so much appreciation for, um, for getting these trials out and doing everything that you're doing up in Minneapolis. Zach, thank you for the opportunity to talk to you, and uh, it's always a pleasure. Yeah. All right, man. All righty, the ECMO. There's November 2020. A couple of housekeeping things here. You know, as as I speak with Dimitri and we as we talked kind of off beyond the interview, it just you see these numbers in their studies and you realize that they look so pretty and they look so nice and then you hear about their struggles day to day and how, you know, they're up for five hours taking care of these patients and then their ICUs are so full from accepting people from all over uh, Minnesota and you realize the hard work that it takes and just the dedication. So uh, we are all indebted to Dimitri and Jason uh, for their work. On another note, uh, I don't know if you've noticed in the news this week, it's everywhere, but Janelle Badulak uh, helped with her team at University of Washington save a mountaineer off of Mount Rainier who was hypothermic and an ECPR candidate and, and got ECMO in their ER. Amazing story. Take a look at that. Janelle and I are... Oh, man, we're so close in finishing the ELSO ECPR book. I hope to get this out early next year, and uh, we will all let you know. Of course, Dimitri and Jason and Janelle and all a whole slew of amazing uh, ECPR writers are involved, in, and we'll get you that information out. All right, November ED ECMO, we're out of here.